Uh, thank you, everyone, for being here. Hey, good morning. Good morning. We good? We good? Yeah, you good? Okay, come on. Um, you know, hey, I want to just welcome everyone, like, for real. And also, you know, there are a few additional visitors this morning. I know from uh, Rooted Church Plant, another church plant in Raleigh. Uh, I see Pastor Gary right here on the third row. So, yeah, welcome to you all, too. Um, let's turn in our Bibles if you have one or a phone or something, let's turn to Ephesians. That's in the New Testament. Um, that's one of Paul's letters in Ephesians. We're going to be in chapter 3 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 13. Ephesians 3, 7 through 13. I was thinking about it this week. I was thinking like, you know, maybe it was because our family was wait. We were like waiting for an important phone call this week. Um, and, you know, we don't even, like, answer the phone anymore. Like, if, you know, if someone calls you, it's almost rude these days. It's like, you, you not have just texted me. Um, but we were waiting for a really important phone call. And so I think it's just on my mind. And uh, I was thinking, what, is, what do you guys think is, like, the most important phone call in history? Um, and so I was thinking about that, and I, I, I did find one candidate. And here it is, the, the phone call in 1969 on July 20th that Richard Nixon made to the two astronauts on the moon. That's pretty significant right there. You know, here's what he said. He was talking to Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. You guys know Buzz? He said, I'm talking to you by the telephone from the Oval Room at the White House. And he said, and this certainly has to be the most historic telephone call ever made. I just can't tell you how proud we all are of what you've done for every American. This has to be the proudest day of our lives. And people all over the world, I'm sure they too, with Americans and recognizing what an immense feat this is. Here's a key part. Because of what you have done, the heavens have become part of man's world. And as you talk to us from the sea of tranquility, it inspires us to redouble our efforts to bring peace and tranquility to earth. I guarantee you a speechwriter wrote this for him. You know, it's like such an authentic phone call, right? Okay. Hey, but I chose the title this morning for this passage, Answering the Call. Because in Ephesians 3, 7 to 13, in these verses, Paul is telling us, he's telling us about his own calling. He's telling us, about our calling, like the resulting calling upon every Christian, upon the church. And I don't think it's an exaggeration when I say that the call of God on the church, and by church we mean the people of God, that is the most important call in history. That's the call that truly has made the heavens part of man's work. And so we're looking this morning at answering the call. And like, you know, a big, a big theme or a big idea for today would be we want to hear the call of God from the word of God to do the will of God. All right? I mean, and, and I think what we need to do this morning is just put our ear down to our Bible and hear the call of God from the word of God to do the will of God. So we're going to be looking this morning at four callings in the Christian life. This passage of verses, what we want to do is teach through it, and this passage of verses just breaks down very nicely into four 
callings in the Christian life. So what I want to do first is just read the passage. Um, It'll be on the screen behind me. I'll read it to you, and then we're going to pray together that God will help us learn from this passage of Scripture this morning. So Ephesians 3, verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purposes that he realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So let's pray now that we've read the passage and pray for the Lord to help us understand. God, we thank you this morning for gathering us together. Lord, we are gathered under your name, the name of Christ. God, we uh, are thankful for the relationships and connections that you've blessed us with, some in this room, some not. Lord, we just thank you for the fellowship that we have as believers. Lord God, we just pray that you would help us to hear from you this morning. Maybe it's a specific calling and, and, and unique vocation that you have for us. Maybe it's to really just hear you calling our name out that we might hear your voice, respond in faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Lord, we just ask that that Holy Spirit, you would do what we're not able to do, Lord. We're not able to just, just try hard to understand the Bible this morning. We need you to illuminate the truth that is on these pages and So Jesus, help us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Answering the call. Okay. Four callings of the Christian life. Four callings. And in verses 7 and 8, like the way this goes, the way it breaks down, like in the first point, we see we're called to the gospel. Called to the gospel. And what's going on here is Paul, he's like, it's biographical. Like he's sharing With the Ephesians, he's writing to a church in Ephesus, which is in Turkey. He's sharing with them his own story. And so you could quickly say, well, okay, that's great to learn about, hear about, whatever. That's for him. It's not for us. But it's commending to us. Paul's sharing his story, his biography. It is about him, but it's also for us. It's for every Christian, just like it was for him. And what he's doing in the first point is he's just talking generally like his calling was to the gospel. In fact, look at the first three words of verse 7. It says, of this gospel. And you think, well, that's an interesting way to start. Well, in verse 16, actually verse 6, that was the last word he said. He said gospel. And then he continues his thought. He's like, of this gospel. And so I think it would be helpful for us just quickly to answer that question Hold on, what are we talking about? 
What is the gospel? Let's not assume that. What is that? And the gospel, literally, it just means good news. Really, I want to say to you this morning, Christianity is not good advice. It's good news. Our problem, apart from Christ, is not that we're bad people. It's worse than that. According to the Bible, our problem is that we're spiritually dead people. God gives life and we're disconnected from him because of our sin. And so we're not alive spiritually. Oh, we might be very active and even religious. But do we really have service? Do we really have a connection with the true God of the Bible? The Bible says when we're stuck in our sin, we do not. There is a barrier, a gulf between us and a holy God. So the gospel is not good advice. It's not good moral advice for how to live. It's good news that God has done something for us in our tragic situation. What has he done? He sent his son. He sent Jesus to come and live the life none of us have lived. And willingly go and be crucified die the death that all of us deserve. That's like what the Bible teaches. It's gospel. It means good news. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of, here it is again, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that, watch these key five words, Christ died for our sins. The gospel. Jesus in your place. In accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with, With the scriptures. And so the gospel is good news. And it's not enough to just know about it, just like it's not enough to read what's in a drink and understand the contents and the ingredients without tasting it. You have to receive the gospel. You have to take it in. You have to appropriate it to yourself. You have to, what does the Bible call that? Believe in Christ. To turn from your own ways, your own thinking, your own wisdom, and turn to Christ. So that's what the gospel is. So let's just keep going in this verse. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Well, there's really some things we can understand about how Paul understood his calling to the gospel here, isn't there? Listen. What is it that Paul was a minister of, according to this verse? The gospel. Hello? He's like, of this gospel, I was made a minister. Was Paul born this way? Did he choose it? No. What does it say? Made. Made, not born. Of this gospel, I was made a minister. Did any of Paul's pre-Christian accolades, his resume in life, his intellect, did anything in Paul's life earn him this role? Ask the verse. What does it say? Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift 
of God's grace. So it's a grace gift not earned. Made not born, gifted not earned. Did Paul read the seven habits of a highly effective person, turn his life around for this calling? Is that what happened? Did Paul do it? No. What does it say? Ask the verse. Which was given me, what does it say? By the working of his power. Made not born, gifted not earned, divine not human power. Was Paul superior to other Christians now that he'd been called to be a minister of the gospel? Is that what it showed him? What does it say? He's like shocked by it. To me, though I am the very least of all the, does it say apostles there? What does your translation say? Does it say leaders in the church? What does it say? It says all the saints. Paul's like, I'm the least of every Christian alive right now. Humility. Made not born, gifted not earned, divine not human power. Unlikely. Not likely. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Here's the thing. The gospel, again, we defined it a moment ago, the good news of Jesus Christ profoundly shaped the life of the Apostle Paul from head to toe. Christian ministry for him is ministry of the gospel. There's no other kind for Paul. Paul was not the minister of children. He was not the minister of high school. He was not the minister of college students or the minister of the church or the minister of the neighborhood or of the workplace or of his home. No, he was the minister of the gospel, called to the gospel. The gospel is not merely a tract or a pamphlet, right? It's not merely a tool. It's not merely a Christian buzzword that you put before like your decision to do this, and it's like, oh, suddenly it's spiritual. It's not merely a section of music, like a genre or a style of music, gospel. It's not a topping. It's not even a slice. It's the whole pizza. The gospel is not an add-on in Paul's life. That's what we're, trying, we're seeing here, and it shouldn't be in ours. The gospel is not a, an addition or an add-on or an upgrade. It is a total transformation. That's why it's called being born again, because it's like starting over. The mission of our church is transforming religious and irreligious people through the gospel into passionate disciples of Jesus. So the first point, four callings of a Christian life called to the gospel. So like Paul, you and me as believers, if we are, also have been called to the gospel. Well, we're not apostles, true. Very few of us are even called to be like pastors or to be in ministry vocationally. But if we are Christians, we are all called to the gospel, to be utterly transformed by the gospel 
and to have a ministry of the gospel. Every Christian is called to ministry, but God pays most of his ministers' salaries through other organizations like SAS or Pendo or Wake County Schools. You are called to the gospel. So, call to the gospel. Hear the call of God from the word of God to do the will of God. Second, called to mission to the outsider. So now Paul has, we just saw this, like in the first verse, he has shared his general calling to the gospel. And I'm pretty sure we nailed that down and got that. Okay, moving on. Now, he shares his specific calling, like his specific calling, which was to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, was the mission to the outsider. Look at it, verse 8, the second part. It says, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. To preach, to declare, to announce, to publish. That's what that word means. It, it literally is the word gospel. It's to be an evangelist. Romans 10 says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Look at what Paul says here. He says that his calling is to preach, what does it say? It says the unsearchable riches of Christ. Do you see that? That's interesting. The word here for unsearchable literally means beyond man's ability to investigate and measure. Romans 11 talks with the same word. It says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. The unsearchable riches of Christ. So Paul viewed his calling as one where he is declaring riches to people. Not material riches. But what he's already talked about in Ephesians 1 of how we've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. Actually, this month, there was an article in The Guardian about a Chinese vase. And I had to look at it because I actually have another illustration about a really expensive Chinese vase. And this is a new story. So you're welcome if you've heard both now. But an extremely rare 18th century Chinese vase was bought by a surgeon in England for a few hundred pounds in the 1980s. And it has now sold at an auction for $1.8 million. So the story is amazing. I read it this week. It's a 60 centimeter or two feet blue glazed silver and gold vase decorated with cranes and bats was created for the court of the Qinlong Emperor in the 1700s. It was bought by the owner's late father for its looks, and the vase sat in the kitchen of the family's home, where it was spotted in the 1990s by an antiques expert, Mark Newstead, during a social visit. Newstead said, I was at the house with my wife for lunch in the 90s. I was surprised to see the vase in the kitchen and said, I think that's something rather good but didn't pick it up or inspect it as, I quote, 
that wouldn't have been appropriate. That's what he said. Um, well, things changed. Years went by. Their friendship continued. And eventually he examined his friend's face. And it says, Newstead identified the Chinese emperor Qinlong's six-character seal mark on its base and said the vase was likely displayed in the halls of the King Palace in the mid-18th century. And so he helped his friend realize, you have $1.8 million sitting in your kitchen. And it was sold at an auction for that much. So it was a social visit. And I just was reading this and thinking, would we, because of our expertise, be willing in a social visit to tell our neighbor or friend or family member some news that would make them unsearchably rich? Of course we would. How do we view the gospel? Do we see it as me imposing my views on another? Or do we see it as sharing God's message, which is the unsearchable riches of Christ, the good news of Jesus. When we do find it to be that way, I think it may free us and encourage us to share it more freely. So listen, this point is a little bit nuanced. So Paul had this specific calling, this mission to the outsiders. Part one of it was to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. But don't miss this. What does it say? It says, to the Gentiles. And that's actually really important because that's the outsiders. Paul is a Jew. He's a Jewish Christian, and he was called to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to the outsiders, to the Gentiles, which leads to the second part of this. He had a calling to preach the unsearchable riches and also to bring to light something by doing that. Does that make sense? Look at it. He says, and to, I'm in verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Now, we've been studying Ephesians for several weeks now, and so some of you are caught up, but quickly, this word mystery is important important. He's used it many times in Ephesians. He's used 27 times in the New Testament, 20 of those by Paul. Mystery, something previously unknown, now made known. That's what it means. In Ephesians 3, verse 3, it's the mystery that was made known to Paul by revelation from God. In verse 4, the mystery that was not made known to anyone before this. In verse 4 also, the mystery that has been revealed to the other prophets and apostles. In verse 6, this mystery is defined as the complete union of Jew and Gentile with each other through Christ. So you see how they work together. Paul preaches the unsearchable riches to Gentiles, and when they respond in faith, to the message of the gospel. They become a part of the family of God. And when that happens, they then join the family of God. And what the deal is, is that the mystery is that God is bringing together all people, Jew and Gentile, into one man, Jesus Christ. So a definition for mystery, and I'll put it on the screen, would be this. God's eternal plan to bring together otherwise divided people 
by saving them through Christ and then incorporating them together in the church, all for his glory. That's the mystery. So Paul's preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles, and when they respond in faith, he's then showing everyone the mystery, which is Jews and Gentiles together, unity in the gospel. What divides the world should not divide the church. One of the greatest witnesses the church can have to the world is that Christ brings us together. The blood of Christ unifies people more than blood. So, Paul was called to this mission to the outsider, which was to the Gentile. Paul was called to share with them the unsearchable riches. You know, it's just a challenge for us, right? Jesus called disciples to be fishers of men, right? Not keepers of the aquarium. Like, like he's like, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Like we're all called to a ministry to the outsider. How do we bring the unsearchable riches of Christ to people who have not yet had the opportunity to come to know Christ? When was the last time you shared the unsearchable riches of Christ with a friend or a family member? Let me stop there. because I know when I ask that question, it's like, there's like two people that are like, yesterday, yeah, bro, come on. And then there's like the rest of us that are like, yeah, I'm not doing that great on that. I'm doing great on it, though, by the way, personally, because I just stand up here and do it every Sunday. It's actually, this podium helps a lot. I bring it to the grocery store, just go down the aisle, share the gospel with people. Okay, just kidding. Um, but yeah, it's tough. It would help a lot if we really believed that the gospel was the unsearchable riches of God. But instead of asking, when's the last time? How about this? When's the next time? When's the next time? What will we do? How will we be a people that are called to the mission to the outsider? Here's a quote from William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army. He says, not called, did you say? Not heard the call, I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible and hear him bid you go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burdened, agonized heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not to come here. And then look Christ in the face, whose mercy you have professed to obey. And tell him whether you will join heart, soul, body, and circumstance in the march to publish his mercy to the world. Powerful. Four callings of the Christian life. Call to the gospel. Call to the mission. To the outsider. And having explained both of these now in verse 10 through 12, we're going to see the resulting call to the church. To the church, the people of God gathered to praise him. So look at verse 10. It says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Okay. This is a really important verse in Ephesians. Um, Like 
If you're using one of our Bibles, feel free to underline it, circle it. Um, Pay attention to this verse, please. Look Look what he says, through the church. God's got this major plan through the church. You see, it says the manifold wisdom of God. You ever had a twofold plan? And then you're like, mm, maybe I'll have a minifold plan. That's the word. It means multiple. The manifold wisdom of God. It's the same word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for Joseph's coat of many colors. It's like God has this manifold wisdom, this intricate embroidery that the multicolored robe had, this grand weaver with his glorious wisdom putting together this church on display, not just for the world to see, but for the universe to see. That's what this is saying. Through the church, picture it. Like you're in a theater, the world is the stage. God is the author telling the story. The church is the main actors. And who's in the audience, according to verse 10 here? Who is it? It's the non-omniscient angels and demons in the universe. The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Our vision's too small. We're like, you know, I want our church to have a good reputation in the community. God's like, yeah, that, but also I'm trying to make my manifold wisdom known, not just in your community, but in the universe, through the church. Here's a quote on this verse from a sermon I listened to many years ago with John Piper. He's a pastor. He preached this sermon. Here it is. The church of Jesus Christ is the most important institution in the world. The assembly of the redeemed, the company of the saints, the children of God are more significant in world history than any other group, organization, or nation. The United States of America compares to the church of Jesus Christ like a speck of dust compares to the sun. The drama of international relations compares to the mission of the church like a kindergarten riddle compares to Hamlet or King Lear. And all the pomp of May Day in Red Square and pageantry of New Year's in Pasadena or the red carpet at the Oscars fade in formless gray against the splendor of the bride of Christ. Called to the church. You know, let me ask a convicting question in love, okay? Really in love. Why do we sometimes persist in the bad habit of relegating what is central to God to the peripheral of our lives. This entity through which God is cosmically showing off his manifold wisdom is not just another commitment to be juggled. It's something deeper. I know many of us have had bad church experiences. I have. Just so you know, I'm not having one currently. <laughs> hey, Paul has had really bad church experience. He's in prison. And he's writing this. The vision of our church, our vision statement, is literally making the truth, beauty, and compassion of the gospel visible through the local church to the city, campuses, and world. That's why I love this verse. We're called to the gospel. We're called to the mission, to the outsider. And we are called to the church. 
Now we're called here to steadfastness. But before we get to that point, I want to show you verses 11 and 12, lest you think I was skipping them. Verse 11, you see it? It's like Paul, as he's sharing this plan about what God is going to do through the church, it's like he anticipates some questions. Like maybe some people saying, whoa, Paul, this sounds like your crazy plan. So verse 11, he's like, no, it's God's plan. Look at it. He says, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then in verse 12, it's, it's as if they would say, okay, fine, maybe it's God's plan. But Paul, that sounds really difficult. How are we going to do that? Who's going to help us with that? He's like, I got you. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. But we're called to the church. God is at work in the church. We don't want to just be over here saying, God, come join in what I'm doing. We want to join in what God's doing. God is at work profoundly through the church. There are many good local churches, okay? So now we are called, lastly, these four callings of the Christian life to steadfastness. Verse 13. Yeah, it's really clear here. This is application for us. He literally says, so I ask you. He's like, all right, in light of all that, here's my one ask. He's like, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now remember, Paul is in prison, so that's his suffering. He's in prison in Rome, and he's writing to the Ephesians, and he is worried that they are worried. Does that make sense? Like, he's the guy in prison, but he's worried that they're getting a little too down about that. What a great example of just being a good leader, and yet Paul still would say he's the least of all the saints. But this is just a moment where he's being very Christ-like. He's concerned for them. And so he's like, don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. Why does that matter? Because what he wants is for them to understand the role suffering plays in glory. There are two views on Paul's imprisonment or Paul's suffering that the Ephesians could take or that Paul could take. He was in prison for sharing the gospel with the Gentiles. Literally, that's what got him locked up. So one view of it would be to see it just as futility. Like, see it as futility. Suffering is futility. And in that view, avoid it at all costs and tone it down. Like, you can't avoid it. Just tone it down, Paul. The other view would be to view it as glory. And in that view laboring and fighting for the gospel, for the Gentiles in this culture that is hostile toward it. Literally, think about it, literally. If Paul had himself lost heart at the sight of suffering in Philippi or in one of the places he was at before Ephesus, he never would have brought the good news of Jesus Christ to Ephesus. So literally, his suffering and his not losing heart from his suffering is literally their glory. So either view it as futility or view it as glory. And that's for Paul, but what about for us? 
They're really, it's the same. Two views on the trials and opposition we will certainly face as we walk out of this room after this sermon trying to answer the call. Two views. Futility, avoid it. Be down about that opposition. Run from it. Or glory. Be steadfast. Stay encouraged. In Paul's request of us, so I ask you, do not lose heart. So we're looking this morning, four callings of the Christian life. Really the goal that I had for us was that we would hear the call of God from the word of God so that we would be ready to do the will of God. We're called to the gospel. We're called to the mission, to the outsider. We're called to the church. And for all of this, we need to realize that we're called to steadfastness. So let's close in prayer as the worship team comes and leads us in a song of response.